Leviticus 8 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash round his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod round him, binding it to him with a band. And he placed the breastpiece on him and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stands to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it, and Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung, he burned up with fire outside the camp. As the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burnt them on the altar with a burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments, and his sons uh, and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it and the bread that's in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. 
and what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that uh, we find uh, certain portions of your word hard to understand. Uh, The gap, the distance between what you say uh, to Moses and Aaron here and what you say to us uh, this morning feels uh, just too big to bridge. Uh, So we pray uh, that the same spirit who wrote these words uh, some 4,000 years ago uh, would come to us now, open our eyes, unstop our ears, that we might hear what he is saying to us. We praise you that that same Holy Spirit uh, who wrote Leviticus through Moses is the same Holy Spirit uh, who dwells in our hearts. So Father, write his words on our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Leviticus 8 is one of those corners of the Bible that really makes you stumble and trip, is it not? Uh, When you read it on your own. So many strange rituals, so many sacrifices. There's blood being wiped on people's ears and thumbs. There's lambs dying all over the place. Rams uh, being sacrificed on altars. There's clothing. The kind of clothing we we don't normally wear. What's an ephod? What's an urim and a thumim? It's the kind of chapter that, that, particularly if you're reading on your own, there'll be a strong temptation to just zoom through and get past. It seems such a different world, doesn't it? That's one of the problems with Leviticus. And you, you, I don't suppose anyone in this room has ever seen an animal sacrificed. I don't suppose anyone in this room has ever uh, seen a, a, a priest bring a, a goat or a ram, pop it on an altar and burn it. Practice is a bit like that. Do go on in the world. Not exactly like the biscuits, but, but sort of things that echo it, seem a little bit like it. But they're so alien to us. And we might be tempted to think, well, we, we, we just don't have things like priests nowadays. This chapter is all about the, the ordination. That's the setting aside for, of Aaron and his sons to be the priests, the spiritual leaders of Israel. And it might be easy to think, well, okay, it's all God's words. We've kind of got to study it and think about it. But it, is it really relevant to us today? So I just, before we dive into the details of it, I just want to try and I suppose, I suppose get our minds to, to, to cross that bridge between Leviticus and Leeds in 2018. Let me ask you a question. Jordan, here's a question. What, you don't have to answer it out loud, but just think. Okay, what would make you happy? Okay. What would make you happy? It's not just a question for children, for all of us. Okay, if you could finish the sentence, I just wish that... How would you end that sentence? It's a right question. It's right to want to be happy. Sometimes, I think especially Christians, we're terrible at this. We think that um, the sort of desire to be happy is somehow sinful or bad or, you know, what I really ought to want to be is holy or, well, we should want to be holy. But, but happiness and holiness are not enemies. God designed the world to make us happy. That's how things ought to have been. We ought to have been joyful. A Christian who's always sort of moping and sad and is not necessarily at all a more godly Christian than one who is happy. So, so we're built with this desire to be happy, whether we call ourselves religious or not. So what would make you happy? 
however you'd end that sense, I, I just wish that. I, I wish that I wish I was married, I wish I had children, I wish I was promoted, I wish I was thinner, or I wish I was wealthier, whatever it might be. Almost certainly, your wish, or the fulfilment of your wish, relies on someone else. Almost certainly, whatever it was that you, you just thought, c- can only come true if someone else does something. And that somebody is the priest in your life. It might sound strange, but, but, but that somebody is the priest in your life. They are the one... Who, who brings you to your goal, if you like. Now, the reason we all want to be happy is humans were made... Children, do you remember where, where were humans put when they were first made? Where did God put Adam and Eve? Where did he put them? In the Garden of Eden, that's right. And in the Garden of Eden, everything was good. Okay, no sin, no suffering, no sadness. And so, ever since we've been thrown out, ever since all of us, again, whether we're Christians or not, have had this desire to get back to that kind of happy place, if you like. And so we, we, we get a bit sort of confused and we forget about Eden, we forget about God, and we try to make our own little paradise. And we just think, well, I just wish that well, I could be married and then I'd be happy. Who's going to make you happy? Well, a man or a woman. They're going to bring happiness to you. Or we think, I'd be happy if I could just become a manager at work. Okay, I just need to get up that next step, then I'd be happy. Who's going to make you happy? Well, the boss. You can't promote yourself. Someone above you is going to promote you. I think, I just wish I could be a few pounds lighter, okay, or bench press a few more uh, pounds in the gym. Uh, who's going to make you happy? Well, your gym instructor, or your Weight Watchers guru, I don't know what they call them, leader. <laughs> okay, there's someone who delivers for you, your, your dream. Somebody brings the little, what we might call salvation to you. The thing that's going to make your life good again. In other words, for all of us, our, our happiness, our desires, lie in the hands of someone else. It is someone else who can bring us the fulfilment we desire. And honestly, those people are essentially priests. We wouldn't call them that. But that is what they are. They function the same way as the priests of the Bible and, in fact, other religions. So you see, as I remember when I was in London, um, at lunchtime, very often, uh, you go into the, the, especially the sort of um, wealthy areas, and the bankers, the lawyers. And what would you see? At lunchtime, out would come these really wealthy lawyers or, or bankers. Uh, they'd find a little bit of green space and they would meet their personal trainer. And in that little half-hour slot, their personal trainer over lunchtime would drill them. And they'd be doing press-ups and sit-ups and running around. And the personal trainer came and met them. They had this little one-on-one session so that they could, whatever, achieve their body shape they wanted to have, whatever it might be. It's, just, it's very like, it's very like the way in the olden days people would go to their priest and confess their sins and sort of get right again with God. Their little sort of personal priest who comes and sorts them out. We all do it. And so, when we come to Leviticus and read about these priests, what we're seeing is God's answer to the question, who can bring you back to paradise? Who can bring you happiness? Who can bring you back to the the state of affairs that that ought to have been? We've already seen that it relies on sacrifice. Because we've rebelled against God, something's going to have to die, an offering in our place to get back into Eden. 
But chapter 8 and 9 tell us about the people, or the person ultimately, who can bring us back in. Leviticus is not quite so distant from our our world as we might think. For those of you who have not been around, we've seen so far in the book that, that God has built this tabernacle, it's a tent. And the way he's built it and the sort of way he's sewn the curtains and the way he's decorated it, or got Moses to decorate it, it is actually been a picture of the Garden of Eden. So there's sort of trees sort of carved in the middle of it, all sorts of things like that. So it looks like a little garden in the wilderness. They're in the wilderness, the desert of Sinai, but the tabernacle looks like, as best you can, a little garden of Eden. But, but no one's been able to get in. As the book of Leviticus began, no one could actually get in back into this sort of little picture of paradise. And so for the first seven chapters, God has spoken about the sacrifices, the blood that needs to be shed. And here he's going to talk about, finally, the people who can get in, and particularly the high priest. So let's look at some of the details. We haven't got time to, to pick them all apart. It's long and it's complex. But what essentially happens is Moses takes his brother. Did you spot the name of the brother? Anyone spot the name of Moses' brother in this? Have a look down. Uh, at verse 2. See if you can spot his name. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take, what's his name? His name? You might come across it today. His name is, yep, Aaron. That's right, Aaron or Aaron. So this passage is about Moses making Aaron the high priest. Okay, the, the top man, if you like, in the spiritual leadership of Israel. So let's first of all look at very quickly at the seven steps. Very interesting, there are seven steps. Seven times, in fact, each of the paragraphs you will see ends with, they did so and such and such and such, as the Lord commanded Moses, seven times. So in verses one to four, what does Moses have to do? He has to gather everybody together. Okay, pretty simply, this is the setup. This is going to be a public ordination, a public setting apart. It's not done in private. The people need to see that this is the man that can lead them back into paradise, the Garden of Eden. So, so Moses gathers Aaron, his brother, and his sons, Aaron's sons, but also the whole congregation, verse 3, at the entrance to the tent of meeting. They can't go in, but they're there at the entrance washing, watching. Sorry. And then in verses 5 to 9, the, the first steps kick in. And, and three, there are three big steps of making Aaron priest. Okay? And these are the ones we really need to get in our head. Even if we get lost on the offerings and the sheep and the rams dying all over the place, these are the three big things. Uh, first of all, Aaron is washed. Verse 6. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Remember in, in the tabernacle, there's both a, an altar, but also a big bronze basin. Okay, they are washed first. And then they're clothed. And verses 7 through 9 talk about the clothes. We're not going to get into the detail now because it's explained more fully elsewhere in, in Exodus. Um, so Leviticus assumes we already know what's going on in Exodus and we haven't looked at it. So I don't want to get too tied into the detail. But, but having been washed, Moses clothes Aaron. And the clothes that he wears kind of fit the tabernacle. We see the details elsewhere, but he, they're, they're kind of the same colour as the tabernacle. They're blues and purples. Uh, the crown is gold. You see that? Uh, towards the, the end of verse 9. So, so just like the, the holy bit of the tabernacle is made of blues and purples and golds, well, Aaron is dressed to fit, as it were. If you're wondering what the Urim and Thummim are uh, in verse 8, um, that it, basically no one knows. <laughs> but, but we know what they do. They're ways of finding out God's answer to questions. So every now and again, the high priest will be asked maybe by the king, you know, shall we go and fight the Egyptians? Or 
you know, whatever the question might be. And he would take these two things, the urim and the thummim, and they're a bit like dice. They basically throw them, and the answer comes back from God, yes or no. Okay. But other than that, no one's got a clue. So they're a way of working out what, what, what God wants on a particular issue. Uh, so those are tucked into his breastplate. He's washed, he's clothed, and then he's anointed in verses 10 to 13. Now, we don't tend to see many people anointed nowadays. The last person you'll have seen anointed possibly, if you've watched the footage, is the queen. Okay, when the queen gets crowned, or was crowned, she has oil put on her. So in verse 10, Moses takes this oil, this anointing oil, and anoints, first of all, the tabernacle, so the, the actual tent itself, but then in verse 12, he pours it on Aaron's head and anoints him to consecrate him. Now we read past that and think, okay, weird, having oil on his head. But actually, the, that little word anointing is a really important one in the Bible. Because it's the word from which we get Messiah. In fact, the first person called Messiah in the whole Bible is Aaron, the high priest. It was back in Leviticus 4. We skipped over it at the time. But, but Messiah just means anointed one. And Aaron is the first person to be called that. We'll think about why in a moment. And all anointing means, really, it is having oil poured on him. Aaron is anointed. He's messiahed, if you like, to become the high priest. So washed, clothed, anointed. Uh, then in verses 14 to 17, there's the sin offering. For those of you who are around, that's D in our ABCD. It's like the detergent one. It's for cleaning um, up our sin. It, it's a... An offering where the blood is shed in order, uh, verse 15, to make atonement. Uh, after that, there's an ascension offering, or verse 18, calls the burnt offering. That's the one that brings us into God's presence. So Aaron's sin is cleared up. Then he's allowed to sort of come into God's presence symbolically. And then you have this strange new one, verses 20 to 29. It's called the ordination offering. You don't get it anywhere else. It's just about making someone a high priest. That's why I've not seen it anywhere else. And does it remind you of anything? Okay, children, this is going to be this is quite a difficult question. Okay, so listen in to these details. Does this remind you of anything? Uh, what Moses to do? He takes a lamb. He has to kill the lamb, and then he has to take the blood, and he has to put it on something. Okay, painted on something. Actually, here it's the earlobes and the and the hand and the uh, foot. And then he has to take some unleavened bread and they have the unleavened bread and this lamb that's died with its blood painted on something. Does that remind you of anything? Go on, Abs, what does it remind you of? Brilliant. Okay, spot on. That's exactly right. It's the Passover. Does it remind you of the Passover? That's exactly right. Do you remember when Egypt, the Israelites were being brought out of Egypt? They had to, they went through, there were various threats to the Egyptians. You know, if, if you don't let us go, there's going to be flies everywhere, or the Nile's going to turn to blood, or the sun will go dark, all these things. Pharaoh wouldn't let them go, and eventually God said, if you don't let my people go, then the eldest son in every family will die. But because the Israelites were sinful too, they needed cleansing. So God told them to kill a lamb, and here's a lamb dying, a ram, it's a male sheep, a lamb. And then God told them not just to kill the lamb, but to take the blood and paint it over the door. They had to paint it over the, the, sort of the door frame, if you like, of their houses. So that when the angel came through, the angel who was going to kill all the firstborn sons, he would pass over their house. Judgment wouldn't fall on them because the blood was painted on their house. 
And they celebrated by eating a, a meal of lamb and unleavened bread. Well, all those elements are here. It's, it's not a house this time. It's a person who's being passed over. And so I think the idea is that just as, if, as the Passover made all of Israel into God's holy people, okay, that was the moment they escaped and were taken out of Egypt. Well, so in a sort of ceremony that's a bit like the Passover, the same thing, the lamb dying, the blood being painted on them, and unleavened bread being, being eaten. Well, so Aaron and his sons are taken from the holy people and made really holy people, the ones who are allowed right into God's tabernacle. That's the sixth stage. And the final stage, verse 30 uh, through to the end, uh, oil and blood are sprinkled again on the clothing and on Aaron and his sons. And the whole thing is a process of seven days, verse 35. Seven days before they actually start the action uh, in chapter 9. Now, what is this saying to us? I, I don't pretend that that is not complex. What is it saying to us? I want to draw out three things that I think God says to us today through Leviticus 8. The first, it should be a huge encouragement, the first is about God's grace. What Leviticus 8 shows us is that God uses sinners... To lead his people. Who is the man who is about to become the spiritual leader of Israel? Aaron. What do we know about Aaron so far? Again, we haven't looked at Exodus. So you've forgiven for not not remembering the story. But, But the one big thing that Aaron has done so far, sort of on his own as a leader, was actually to take God's people away from God. When Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments... Have we talked about a moment ago? He was up in the cloud. He was away 40 days and 40 nights. He was up at the top of the mountain. And so Aaron was in charge of the people down at the bottom. And what did Aaron do? Did he have them all waiting, praying, behaving themselves? No. He led them. Well, he led them to make a golden calf and to worship this golden calf. He led them in a huge rebellion. A rebellion, in fact, that cost loads of people their lives. Aaron had completely betrayed God, had completely disobeyed God's word, and had led the people astray in Exodus. The last thing he did. And yet, God still chooses him to be the leader, the spiritual leader of his people. In that sense, there's a bit of a parallel, isn't there, with the New Testament. The senior person, if you like, among the disciples, the one on whom the church will be built... Jesus says, is Peter. Peter. Peter who, in fact, hugely betrayed Jesus, who denied that he knew him. As just a little slave girl asked in the courtyard whilst Jesus was on trial, I know you, you're with Christ. He says, I do not know him. Isn't it interesting that in both the old and the new, these kind of senior figures who are going to be hugely important in the leadership of God's church, are two figures who have sinned hugely, spectacularly, and yet have been forgiven and know the grace of God. That, I suspect, is, is one of the, the main qualifications for leadership. Not that we need to go and sin and be forgiven. Clearly, we're always meant to fight against sin. But understanding that it is about the grace of God. That ultimately, we are ministers of grace. Now, none of us are high priests today, none of us are any kind of priest today. We'll think about that in a sec. 
But there is a temptation, isn't there, to think, well, even if God forgives me, perhaps I've done something, perhaps you're very conscious of some sin in your life, something you've done in the past, or just very aware of your guilt, your uncleanliness. There's a temptation to think, well, I know God can forgive me, but that's where it stops. He can't anymore use me. Okay, now I've let him down like that, or now I've done that kind of sin. From now onwards, I might be forgiven, I can sort of sneak into heaven, but he can't use me. Time and again in the Bible, these big leaders who seem so significantly used of God have actually sinned hugely. It's not just Peter and Aaron. Think of Paul, who in the book of Acts at the beginning is arranging the murder of Christians, the, the, the execution of Christians, and yet he becomes one of the most significant preachers of the gospel, an apostle. No, it, no less, in God's church. Think of David, the great king of Israel, who commits adultery with Bathsheba and arranges the murder of her husband. And yet he is the one from whom Jesus is descended. Great king of the Old Testament. Think of Abraham, the founder of the Jewish people. He, when he gets in trouble with a local king, pretends his wife is his sister so that she can sort of go and seduce him. And that's a pattern that continues beyond just the Bible. Uh, you might know of John Newton, uh, who wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, he was a great minister of the 18th century, writer, uh, wrote lots of hymns. But what did he do before that, before he wrote hymns? Before, do you know, children, do you know Amazing Grace, the hymn we sing? Do you know the man who wrote that hymn, before he wrote the hymn, his job was to capture slaves and take them into slavery uh, across the Atlantic. He was a wicked, wicked man, and yet used hugely of God after his conversion. This ordination of Aaron shows us the grace of God using people, even after spectacular sin. I wonder if that might be encouragement to one or two of us here today who fear that we've been written off because of something we've done. No, says God, his grace is sufficient. So it speaks to us about God's grace. Secondly, uh, it speaks to us about Jesus. Do you remember that pattern, the big three things that happened? The high priest was clothed, then he was washed, and then he was anointed, all in public. Clothed, washed, anointed. And the reason that this happened to him was he was going to be the representative of Israel. He was the man who was going to be able to, on his own, and no one else, he was the one who was going to be able to go right into the heart of God's tent, the most holy place. And when he did so, he did so not just for himself, it wasn't just that he got the privileges, he did so kind of carrying all the Israelites in. It's almost as if they were sort of piggybacking on him. Because the breastplate that he wore, that were just mentioned in all the clothing, the breastplate that he wore, and in fact the shoulder tabs, had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on them. So symbolically, as he went in, he was carrying all the people with him into paradise, back into the Garden of Eden. Do you start to see the parallels with Jesus? Jesus came, the book of Hebrews tells us, to be our great high priest. It is he who can carry us back into God's presence. It's he who carries us into heaven. We can't get in our own. We need someone to represent us. Someone to bring us in. Someone to deliver salvation to us. Or deliver us into salvation. And just like the high priest, Jesus was clothed and then washed and then anointed. First of all, he's clothed. He, he's clothed. He comes in tabernacles along, among us. 
John 1 says. He's clothed in flesh. Jesus hasn't always been a man, has he? Do you know that? Jesus has always been the son of God. He was never born. He never began to exist. He's always existed. But in Bethlehem, he was born a man. He was clothed in flesh, as we sometimes sing. He became one of us so that he could represent us. And then how did his ministry begin? Come with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. As Jesus begins this great work of resting us, bringing us into God's presence, what does he do? Mark chapter 1, how does it begin? That's uh, page 836. Mark chapter 1, and let me read just a couple of verses from verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. How does Jesus begin his ministry? First of all, by being washed. He goes into the river, the river Jordan. Now everyone else was being baptised. It was a picture of their sin being washed away. Well, Jesus didn't have any sin, so he didn't need to be washed clean. But he did join the people in the river. It's a picture almost of, imagine all the dirt being washed off the people and then washed onto Jesus. So imagine a really dirty bath. Okay, imagine you're really dirty. And first of all, you're... you're your friend gets in the bath and they wash all the mud off them. And so the water goes mucky. Okay? And then the dog jumps in the bath okay? and it's full of hair and disgusting mud. And, grub, okay? and then a baby gets in the bath. All the food that's been all over the bit, that gets in the water too. And then your mum says, right, you get in. Ah, disgusting. I don't want to get in a dirty bath. You only want to get in a clean bath, don't you? Well, for Jesus, Jesus came and he was clean. He never sinned. But he got into the dirty bath for us. All the dirt, all the sin that was on us, that was washed away in the picture of baptism, washed onto him at the beginning of his ministry. This was Jesus saying, yes, I will take all their dirt on me. But he's not just washed, he's then anointed. The spirit descends on him like a dove. All the way through the Old Testament, the, the, the oil that is poured on people in an anointing is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's like it's a little shadow of what's going to come. Ultimately, oil can't make you holy, can it? Remember in Leviticus, the oil consecrated or made people holy. But oil is just oil. If you go home and pour oil on yourself, it's not going to make you any holier, is it? Well, the Holy Spirit comes and anoints Jesus for the work that he's about to do. Mark is saying Jesus is our high priest. He's clothed in flesh. He's washed And then he's anointed. And he does that so that he can bring us into the presence of God. Whatever your dream was, if only I could have dot, 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 if only this were true. It's all just, we're all just grasping. We're grasping for the perfection of Eden, where the Bible began. We're grasping for heaven. And we think we can build it here on earth. If I'd just be married, I'd be happy. If I just had kids, I'd be happy. If I was just wealthier, I'd be happy. If I was thinner, I'd be happy. But it's not true. It's not true. It's kind of half true. Most of those desires are perfectly good desires, but they won't deliver. Ultimately, sin and death will ruin it for all of us. Jesus is the true high priest. He is the only one who can bring us into heaven. 
And that's hugely good news because it means it doesn't rely on me. I don't have to get thinner or more attractive or wealthier. I don't have to make myself cleaner or holier or more spiritual. Rather, I have to trust him to do it all for me. That's what grace is, isn't it? Salvation being a gift. Children, have you ever been somewhere where you're only allowed in if you've got a grown-up with you? Perhaps a cinema. And they only let you in if your mum and dad are with you. Or a, a theme park. You're only allowed in if mum and dad are here. Or when your parent takes you in, they're acting a bit like the priest. The person who can bring you into the place you want to go. To get into heaven, you can't get in on your own. None of us can get into heaven alone. But all of us will end up in God's presence. Have you ever thought about this? Everyone in this room one day will spend eternity in God's presence. In fact, everyone in the world will spend eternity directly in God's presence one day. Because God says one day he will return. But the difference is huge as to how we experience that presence. It's either going to be heaven or it's going to be hell. Both are places of God's presence. The picture of hell in the Bible, terrifying though it is, is described in Revelation as as fire that never goes out, as burning in the presence of the Lamb. So what's the difference between hell and heaven? They both have the presence of God. God is present in heaven and in hell. The difference is whether or not we go in on our own or with a high priest. One person says this, hell is eternity in the presence of God without a mediator, okay, without Jesus, without a priest. Heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator. You must not enter God's presence without a mediator, without Christ. Because that will be an eternity of pain and punishment. But with Christ, he's able to usher you into, usher you into an eternity of joy. Between now and then, look, it's going to be up and down, isn't it? There'll be good times in your life and sad times. But you will not build heaven on earth. But Christ has built heaven and one day will bring it to earth and he can bring us in as the great high priest. And that's why thirdly and finally, much more briefly, this passage in Leviticus 8 teaches us not just about Jesus as the great high priest, but about how he makes us little priests in his image. Just as the high priest was was washed and clothed and anointed well so we are too we've looked at this in 1 Peter if you've been with us over the last few weeks on Wednesdays Peter says we're a royal priesthood and he doesn't just mean that the church leaders or something we're not priests, I'm not a priest he means all Christians are royal priesthood why? well because Jesus does three things to us he washes us he washes us clean from our sin as the blood is sprinkled on us symbolically he clothes us one of the bible's pictures of what it calls justification uh, is being clothed in christ so if you like all jesus good deeds everything he he did to please his father is like a robe and we're wrapped in that robe so that when god looks at us they see he sees jesus his beautiful robe around us his perfect life around us And so he can welcome us into heaven. And then we're anointed. The Holy Spirit is poured on us. Every Christian is given the Holy Spirit. And that means that in turn, we can enter heaven. And it means too, that that we have a duty. It means we have a duty to the world around. 
these priests in the Old Testament had a responsibility to, to teach God's people about God. They had special access to God, and they were like go-betweens, going back and forth between the, the people and the world and God. But it's always been the duty of God's people to play their part in that. And that's why uh, 1 Peter is sometimes taught to, to teach the, the priesthood of all believers. In fact, that's an Old Testament idea as well. If you read Exodus 19, all of Israel are, are in one sense a priesthood too. There's nothing massively new about it. But God's people have always been given this responsibility of showing the world what God is like. That's why we're thinking about evangelism on our, our Sunday afternoon sessions. It's why one of the duties of the church as a church together uh, is to pray that God will grow the church and bring more people under Christ's priesthood. What would make you happy? I just wish that our only hope, both in life and ultimately in death, is to trust Jesus, our high priest, who is fully able to bring us safely back into Eden, into God's presence.